0: Welcome to the Journal of the History of Ideas podcast. My name is Dishakarna Jani, and I'm a PhD candidate in history at Princeton University. I had the opportunity to speak with Jennifer Pitts this week about her new book, Boundaries of the International. Professor Pitts is professor of political science in the Committee on Social Thought at the University of Chicago, and the author of A Turn to Empire, The Rise of Imperial Liberalism in Britain and France. She is the co-editor of the Law of Nations and Global History, and was the editor and translator of Alexis de Tocqueville, Writings on Empire and Slavery. Her most recent book, Boundaries of the International, which came out last spring from Princeton University Press, explores the relationship between international law and empire as it emerged in the 18th century, and quote, furnished a language for thinking about the relationship between historically particular practices and universal moral principles, end quote that were the foundation of European imperial expansion and violent expropriation. So I guess I wanted to start by asking you a little bit about how this project came about. Um, could you tell us how you came to, to talking about international law and empire in, in this register? Right, sure. So
1: um, as I was finishing my first book, A Turn to Empire around 2004, 2005, um, I was coming to read um, some of the new literature in the in what was them, really the I think embryonic conversation, um, new conversation in, in among historians of international law about international law and empire. So I'm thinking of um, books like Marty Kozakiewicz's Gentle Civilizer of Nations and Antony Angie's um, really <clears throat> brilliant and incredibly important um, Imperialism, Sovereignty, and the Making of International Law, which came out I think in 2004. Um, so I was reading them, and I was also I think through Angie. Um, <clears throat> encountering work from um, in that vein from an earlier period from from the kind of 1950s and 60s in the period of decolonization, um, and for me the most important author in in um, in that earlier body of work was um, Charles Henry Alexandrovich, um, who I was drawn to for many reasons. I mean, m- most immediately I was drawn to his work on um, the Law of Nations and the East Indies because um, his narrative. His, the chronology of his narrative about the relationship between international law and empire uh, was very similar to the chronology that I had uh, developed in my own um, first book about, which was about um, sort of canonical political thinkers and an empire. And very reductively, that chronology was kind of 18th century good, 19th century bad kind of story in which there was an opening in the 18th century <clears throat> of um uh among other things respect among European thinkers for non-european states and societies um, a pretty um, searing critiques of imperial abuses and depredations often not right not outright anti-imperialism but um, strongly critical perspective that to me seemed to have disappeared in the 19th century among thinkers that you would considered to be the kind of liberal heirs of those earlier 18th century critics. So I had had this, this kind of similar narrative in my own work on canonical political thinkers, and then I encountered Alexandrovitz's, um argument, which was a very um, <clears throat> erudite um, argument that the law of nations in the 18th century had been completely... Uh, universalist, and that European thinkers had had considered non-European states to be um, unquestionably members of the international community, and that this had stopped in the nineteenth century. So, um, so all of that is to say, there was um, both an, uh, uh, an older uh, literature in international law and a very fresh conversation that was happening in the first years of the of the two thousands. Um, and I was encountering all of it and finding it really exciting and finding it a kind of indispensable complement to conversations in political theory about empire. And I thought, you know, political theorists really need to engage this material. So that's effectively what I was trying to do. So that's sort of where where it came from. And then I guess more specifically where the idea for the argument came was a kind of combination of <clears throat> encountering Alexander argument and... Um, and a, a line from Mill's essay on non-intervention that stuck with me, you know, that, that's a very famous line that I had known for some time, um, but that sat very uncomfortably with Alexandrovitz's story. Mill had said something to the effect of, you know, um, barbarous nations are never part of the law. Nobody, um, whoever, who's ever considered the subject, thinks that barbarians um, are subjects of the law of nations. Um, it's effectively a preposterous idea. And it... And, In light of Alexandrovitz's argument that in the 18th century it had just been taken for granted that non-European states were members of the international community. I was struck by Mill's argument and I wondered to what extent was Mill articulating a a kind of shared view, you know, to what extent did did the contemporaries of Mill, who were international lawyers, share this view. So that's kind of where the project started um, in the later 19th century and then um, and then I worked backward to figure out sort of how did we get to the point, um, how did we get from Al- Alexandrovitz's 18th century, if in fact his, his account of the 18th century was accurate, um, how did we get from there to a time when somebody like Mill could take it for granted that, um, that only European states were subjects to international law. Mm-hmm.
0: You write in the book that this story that you just mapped out for us is part of a critical history Of international law and you named a couple of the people who um, sort of brought that about in in past decades could you say a little more about the relationship between something like political theory or the work that political (laughs) theorists do and Mm -hmm. uh, what this work really read like to me which was um, an intellectual history uh, as well as a treatment of, of political theorists in that register is that sort of a disciplinary distinction for the most part or is there something something else going on there that your book addresses.
1: Yeah, so I think I mean there's a, I think what's emerged in the last, let's say, decade and a half or two decades is a really interesting conversation among convergence among political theorists, intellectual historians and international lawyers around this broad set of questions about about empire, about normative justifications for and critiques of empire, about the place of international law, the relation of international law and international legal arguments, um, to the, the politics of empire in the modern period. Um, so, so on the one hand, I think there's just a kind of, um, let's say a conversation or an argumentative space that's inhabited by people from these various disciplines. Um, and sometimes I struggle to, um, to figure out what the distinctive contribution of political theory might Be to that. Political theory is a less disciplinary discipline than either history or international law, I think. Um, It is kind of inherently interdisciplinary itself. Um, I'll say maybe a bit more in a second about what I think political theory might contribute to that. Um, um, But but I think international lawyers were and historians of international law who, although I think they see themselves to some extent as somewhat peripheral to the discipline of of international law, historians, that is, um, they had come to, the, to these topics first, or at least specifically to the, to the interconnection between international law and empire. Whereas, um, as my own first book suggests, political theorists have been thinking more in terms of, um, you know, the canonical figures of, of political theory and, and intellectual historians, similarly, were coming around to international questions after a long, um, what David Armitage called the 50-year rift between international politics and intellectual history. Um, so all of all of these disciplines were, for, you know, various reasons specific to them, converging on these international questions at around the same time. Um, so I don't see really stark differences between intellectual history and political theory specifically on these questions. I think, you know, to some extent, when the debates get more, the discussions get more um, specifically methodological, the debates might or the differences between the disciplines might come out a little bit more. so, for instance, in political theory, there's been a lot of, of energy around the question of what is comparative political theory, um, and um, and how do we think about the relationship between the you know traditional, extremely Eurocentric political theory canon and political thought in the rest of the world? Um, how do we expand the canon? Does it make sense to think in terms of the canon? Is the very discipline of political theory? Um, you know, hopelessly um, handicapped by the by the, its reliance on a canon. And um, those are the kinds of debates that, that have tended to preoccupy political theory uh, as a kind of methodological matter. Whereas in intellectual history, I think maybe there's been somewhat more attention to questions of kind of globalizing intellectual history. How do ideas move across um, contextual spaces? Um, do they, um, or you know, are there are there kind of fissures and gaps among um, conversations in different um, different parts of the world? So this has been more historicized, more contextual, maybe than some of the political theory debates. But as I say, I think that those differences come out more um, emphatically when people are talking explicitly methodologically, when they're just going about doing their work. I don't I don't see a great. Um, difference between the way intellectual historians and political theorists take up these questions. I think, you know, you might say that political theory um, should bring a more presentist orientation to historical questions than intellectual historians do, but I don't think that's true. I think, in, in fact, um, both historians and political theorists are, are kind of similarly thinking um, in terms of the way that our contemporary questions relate to past circumstances, how you know how historical debates can help us think about our own um, dilemmas and how they can't. Um, for me and for uh, a lot of people that I know who kind of work in this area, David Scott's idea of problem spaces has been really important and influential and an important way of thinking through um, the connection between contemporary dilemmas and, and, um, and historical inquiry. Um, so thinking through what, you know, what are the questions that we confront now, um, what kinds of answers are productive answers to those questions, and how did the questions that, that thinkers in, in at past moments, um, how did the questions that, that they felt themselves to be confronting differ from our own, um, to what extent were they continuous with our own, that
0: kind of thing. Yeah, so I mean, on, on precisely that question, could you, I guess, up for For us a little bit what the stakes for you are of thinking about international law and empire together, because you are very clear in the book, I think, about the kinds of politics behind the argument that you're making, particularly Mm -hmm. when you refer to James Tully's phrase, um, you know, the imperialism of the present and how it relates to thinking and doing international law now, um, particularly with reference to something like the problem space of of this nexus that you're identifying. um, Mm -hmm. Could you talk us through some of those? those stakes for you and for people who you think will will read this book right so um i think
1: um you know international law has been throughout the modern period the kind of key language of justification and normative reflection about international politics generally about the relations of states with one another and People with states and, and other individuals that sort of outside the boundaries of their own um, of their own political community, um, and so um, so I think anytime you want to think about normative questions in international politics, you kind of have to take up the question of, of international law. And and I suppose it came it took me a while to come around to that view, but I think that's partly why it's so important for political theorists to think about the history of international law. So. Um, and for its own part, international law has, again, throughout the modern period, been bound up with questions of
0: uh, of empire
1: um, in ways that I think were, were not recognized for such a long time by by international lawyers and by um, people who wrote the history of international law. Um, so, so I'm interested in the ways in which the kind of fact of the imperial politics, the imperial situation of the contemporary world, the fact of the predominant um, you know, overwhelming power of the U.S., the way in which the U.S. deploys um, its military, economic, um, political power to um, the detriment of so many people around the world. Um, I'm interested in the way, the, the connection between that, or the disconnection between that fact and those problems and the kind of normative language that... Um, that we tend to have for talking about the international, um, realm, which is we live in a world of nation states, um, that are in principle, uh, free and equal. Um, and it, so it's, it just has long struck me that the, that the kind of, and this is, you know, exactly Tully's point about the languages of disclosure, that the, that the, the conceptual Languages that we have for talking about what the international realm looks like are, are for the most part, wholly inadequate to confronting the kinds of um, violence and injustice that um, that is rife in the contemporary world, and that, and so much of which is um, perpetrated directly or indirectly by the U.S. So it's partly as a as a citizen of you know a hegemonic power that's often used. It's um, it's. Might various kinds of might um, for ill that I that I am drawn to these questions. How do we how do we describe that? How do we criticize it effectively?
0: Mm-hmm. And I think your book does a really wonderful job of of doing what what you call, um, or in sketching what you call the ideological and political work of mm. the relationship between the law of nations and and international law, um, and on the question of of that work that's being done. Could you maybe tell us a little bit about whether, I guess, on the one hand, you see this relationship as justification, that is, um, for reasons of political control, for reasons of resource extraction, X, Y, Z, the ideas about a universal law of nations, and particularly international law, are they used as justification for things that are pre-existing and that would have sort of happened anyway, or are they the mechanism by which those things mm-hmm. happen? I guess I'm, I'm maybe asking a, a slightly unfair question about causation, but I, I do sort of meet it in the realm of intellectual and political work. Do you see mm-hmm. the link being that it's justification or do you see the link being um, the law of nations and international law particularly acting as a mechanism by which these things occur and and were moved Forward between the 18th and 19th century,
1: right. I mean, I think um, it's a really hard question. Questions about causation, and um, uh, you know, one could there's a kind of spectrum running from a really strong causation argument that the ideas really made possible certain actions, running to more structuralist, say, kind of Marxian arguments that the. Legal discourses are really echo phenomenal and what's driving things is, is is material relations. And and I guess um, I think you know human agents always justify things to themselves, to others. I mean, we're we're discursive creatures, so I don't think you can you can separate the material from the intellectual so thoroughly as as you know something at, at one extreme of that spectrum might try to do. Um, I don't want to make a strong causal argument about, or, or to kind of disaggregate the causation and try to assign a, you know, a a proportion of that, um, of that causative role to ideas or legal arguments specifically. But I think, um, so I think, you know, that's a sort of fuzzy answer, but the, but the basic argument would be, or the, my basic commitment would be that, um, because we're always, Justifying and and conceptualize, you know that that this is, that law is a is both a justificatory and a conceptual tool, um, and it makes it it's a, you know an indispensable tool for the kinds of agents that we're talking about um, to understand the world that they are operating in and describe it um, and also justify their actions. Um, so I think it's enabling. Um, and, you know, in certain instances, you can see um, more concretely and specifically the role of legal arguments, say, you know, there's an, the episode, one episode that I talk about is um, British parliamentary debates in the lead up to the First Opium War, where, you know, Brit- the, the British state is making decisions about whether to deploy military power in defense of British merchants um, in Canton. And there's a debate in Parliament about whether, whether you know military action is, is justified so that's a, a you know fairly concrete case where legal argument is really important for the deployment of, of state power um, but I think it's exemplary of a much broader phenomenon that that uh, you know officials of states um, and members of publics in what are um, you know democratizing societies not purely democratic for sure but um, societies in which public opinion really matters for state action um, these are the registers in which these debates are carried out by both officials and, um, and broader publics. Um, that's true as well for some of the the 18th century figures that I talk about, including, um, Edmund Burke and the impeachment trial of Warren Hastings. It's another case where legal argument, you know, has, um, an important role to play in political decision-making, um, and, in the, um, the legal decisions of, of William Scott, the Admiralty Court judge. Um, again, those have kind of d- direct effects in the world in terms of awards of prizes um, and other kinds of decisions about um, um, about military encounters.
0: No, that, that makes a lot of sense to me, especially because um, part of what, what you say in your introduction is about how um, Something like the Law of Nations um, provided a language for thinking about these relationships. And then you really show over the course of the book how this language moves out of maybe more localized conversations between uh, legal thinkers, sort of out into the realm of both justifying and then making manifest um, these types of relationships, which makes me think about kind of the two again, I'm talking extremes just for the sake of a mm-hmm. conversation, but if these two extremes of thinking about law and empire in this historiography that you described are on the one hand talking about these thinkers and the tradition you described sort of more more tied to political theory um, in, in sort of making the world in the image of, of these conversations. And then on the other hand, this really messy world of legal pluralism and on-the-fly decision-making that then gets reified Mm. Uh, that really uh, foregrounds practice, imperial mm-hmm. imperial, and particularly colonial practice could you characterize for us then where your work falls in, in between those extremes or perhaps those, that's not a helpful way to think about it and there's another sort of third third way in which we should be conceptualizing something like this book.
1: Yeah I mean so I, I take the question to be partly about to what extent am I talking about the making of international law as a practice in the world or something like that. So Mm -hmm. an example of, of that kind of book would might be something like Lauren Benton and Lisa Ford's um, recent book, Rage for Order, which shows that argues that um, international law emerged out of interimperial conflicts. It emerged out of imperial constitution making, as they call it within empires like the British empire and the Spanish empire. So that's really showing how international law as a practice emerges out of practices, imperial and inter-imperial practices. Um, that's really not what I try to do. In the I admire that book hugely, and I think, I, I think it's very persuasive. Um, and I, I guess I would say what I'm trying to explain is a different sort of thing. It's, it's more how um, international law as a discourse, as you and I have both said, operates in in political argument in this period to to justify and to help people conceptualize. So one of the the arguments that I make is that international law is not just a language of justification in the sense of either um, arguing for or criticizing various kinds of of, um, imperial actions, but it's also a conceptual language. It's also... um, the language that allows people to think about what the international realm looks like, and, and really importantly, the way they think about it from Vattel, from at least onward, and Vattel is a really important figure for me in the book. So his, his um, treatise on the Law of Nations comes out in um, 1758, um, and from that point into the middle of the 19th century, it's one of the most important texts of political thought circulating broadly in, in kind of Europe and the North Atlantic um and he conceptualizes states as nation states as kind of territorially compact effectively republican entities that are um that are moral persons um and it's a hugely influential account of picture of the global order um and it's a picture of the global order that doesn't take empires into account really at all um and it gets picked up precisely by the most important imperial states in the 19th century by agents of those states to justify their actions. Um, it's carried around you know, in the suitcases of imperial officials going to New Zealand, as Mark Hickford has shown, and, and you know, throughout the British empire. Um, so, so it's a conceptual architecture that is really important for people who are doing the political work of empires like the British empire. And again, to go back to the, the opium war debates, um, they're carried out in these in these Vattelian terms, in which people are arguing for the Opium War say Britain is a nation whose sole purpose is to justify is to you know defend and protect free and fair commerce between and among all the nations of the world. Um, China is an empire that's thwarting that effort to um, to foster mutuality among nation states. Um, and that kind of conceptual architecture then becomes important for the justification of the empire war. So, so I'm interested in in explicitly justificatory arguments, and I'm also interested in the way in which um, there's a kind of conceptual architecture implicit in accounts of international law. Mm-hmm. Neither of which is really specifically, for the most part, about the actual mechanisms of law. It's not, you know, I talk a bit about the Admiralty Court, the British Admiralty Courts, as I've said, but um, but that really kind of on the ground practice um, of international law. As I say, I think it's a hugely important subject and I really respect the work of people like Lauren Benton who study it, but it's not quite what the book is about.
0: Mm-hmm. I think a, a really important place where <clears throat> the argument in your book is, is able to sort of vault from something quite specific, like the, the context of the Opium Wars to something that um, is generally talked about in really abstract terms is this question as, as you alluded to just now of, of the particular um, and and the the different and the universal um, Could you tell us more about what the category of the universal or, or universalism is, is doing here because it seems like that's part of what's at stake in locating a category like that in this intersection that you're laying out in this 18th century hinge moment for, uh, international law and the way that it thinks about um, a, a world order. Um, yeah, could you could you tell us a little bit more about how that came to be? What, what seems to me as a really fruitful framing for your argument—the idea of, of this universal.
1: Yeah, sure. So uh, um, I'll I'll try. So I'm I'm interested in the project and the variety of forms that universalism takes over the course of the period that that I'm discussing. Um, and I think there's certain ways in which legal argument lends itself to a kind of universalism in the sense that like case, cases are meant to be treated alike. Um, and um, if differential treatment is in order, it must be because there's some significant difference between the entities in question or something like that. So there's a kind of press toward uniformity in the structure of legal argument, maybe. Um, and that's really visible in, in the work of somebody like Vatel and, and indeed in the longer tradition of the law of nature and, and nations as it was called at the time in which Vatel is a kind of late participant um, so the argument that the law of nations which is to say the law that that governs among nations um is based on the law of the, na- of the law of nature the law of nature is inherently universal in the sense that it applies to all human beings and in all you know, times and places um that's the kind of um uh, conceptual universe in which somebody like Vattel is operating. Um, and I was interested, I mean, again, stemming from from uh, Alexandrovic's argument, which, as I said earlier, was was a very stark argument that in the 18th century it was simply almost definitionally the case that, that Europeans thought of non-European states as members of the community of the law of nations because they saw the law of nations as based on the law of nature. Um, and so it just followed logically. And that all of this changed around the turn of the 19th century when Europeans stopped thinking about the law of nations as based on the law of nature, started thinking about it as based purely on state practice and specifically on European state practice. And so it became particularist and, and Eurocentric. Um, there's something to be said for that story, but I think it's a, um, it's in various ways much too stark. So part of the point of the book was to interrogate the 18th century in particular more Thoroughly and give a more a, a more kind of nuanced and variegated picture of what's going on in the 18th century. Um, and it turns out to be a major preoccupation for at least some thinkers in the 18th century exactly, um, you know, how universal is the law of nations. And I and I was particularly interested in Battelle, partly, as I've said, because his book was so hugely influential and important from the time of its publication for about 80 years. Um, but also, or and, because... The book is so very ambiguous, it seems to me, on this question of universalism. So it's replete with uh, universalist language, it talks all the time about how the law of nations is
0: the law of all
1: mankind, um, all of humanity, etc. But then the content often is um, filled in with practices and norms that are particular to Europe. European states and nations are, for the most part, the main players in his book. He does go to some lengths to find non-European examples that um, support his argument, um, and I think again that he's that that he's in a sense committed to the to the proposition that the law of nations applies everywhere in the world. Um, but at the same time, it's, it's it, it, in its content quite a partial universalism. Um, so I'm in, interested in the kind of ambiguous universalism of somebody like Vattel. I'm interested then in how that the, the the kind of universalism as a as a argumentative resource is taken up by figures again like Edmund Burke in the um, in the impeachment trial or in Hastings who who kind of aggressively pushes the universalist implications of, of talents and and also thinks in really creative ways about the potential limitations of that or, you know are we imposing if we if we think of the law of nations as applying to say relations between agents of the British East India Company and various states in India, are we imposing European norms on on Indian states? Um, And Burke and a few others um, around that time, I I suggest in in the book, develop um, a pretty subtle account um, that both takes European states to be bound in their dealings with non-European states precisely as they are bound in their dealings with Europe, um, other European states. And, um, and at the same time, um, offers a kind of deference to non-European states to say, well, they can't be bound in all of their particulars by the European law of nations because it is a particular, you know, historically particular body of norms that's emerged at a particular time and place. So somebody like Burke is, is, um, is thinking quite creatively in between those two those two notions that there's that that you know you have to be um, bound by certain rules. If you consider yourself bound by certain rules with Europeans, then you should consider yourself bound by those same rules with others. And at the same time, you can't necessarily expect them to be bound by by similar rules. Um, so Burke and and Lord Stoll, the, the really important admiralty court judge around the, the turn of the 19th century during the Napoleonic Wars, in their various ways um, are thinking through that that kind of constellation of universalism plus a kind of respect for difference. Um, and then I'm also interested. And then uh, and then you know there's a, a that line of argument that uses universe, universalist law of nations' arguments to criticize imperial actions um, becomes very much a minority voice. I mean, it's probably always a minority voice, but it becomes even less prominent in the 19th century, but you do find it occasionally claims that it's, um, it's European contempt for international law in, um, in Asia that is the source of the kinds of violence, say, that you encounter in the Sepoy Rebellion in, in India in 1857, 1858. Um, that if that if Europeans genuinely respected the norms of international law and their dealings with Asian states the way they do amongst each other um, then there would be a lot less violence in the world. Again it's a it's not a common argument but but I'm I'm interested in those moments when that kind of argument erupts and and I, I find it interesting too that it's mostly not professional international lawyers who make that claim. I found it hard actually to find any international lawyers who consistently make a claim of that sort. But you do find it in a kind of broader public um, context in in uh public journals and that kind of thing um and then on the other so that's a kind of universalist critique of of imperial abuse let's say um and then on the other side there are those who criticized universalism as itself imperializing as kind of inherently imperializing um what you might call sort of pluralist critiques of european universalism and again those aren't common Um, the most interesting one that i found is um is by the historian robert ward who wrote probably the first history of the Law of Nations in in English, which was published in 1795. Um, And his argument is that Europeans have no business imposing their own narrow conception of the Law of Nations on other societies, that there are many laws of nations or communities of the Law of Nations in the world, and these are are kind of communities of norms and practices that grow up amongst societies that have um, a kind of dense network of ties and commercial interactions among themselves. and that there's one such community in Europe, but there are others in um, various parts of Asia. Sometimes they encounter one another as between the Ottoman Empire and Europe, um, but that the law of nations is by no means universal. The European law of nations is by no means universal, and Europeans have no business imposing their views on others. And he specifically talks about the concept of, of commerce, as you see it in Vatel, and says Vatel and, and other Europeans have you a know, distinctive notion of, of the, the nature and value of commerce, but they have no... Justifi- you know, there's no justification for them to, um, to impose that on others. So that's a very different argument from the kind of universalist critique that says there are a set of standards that Europeans hold themselves to when they deal with each other and then they violate those when they go outside Europe, um, which I'm calling the kind of universalist critique of, of imperial abuse. Um, so that's a kind of spectrum of, of universalism. Another one that I didn't mention is the more consistently imperializing liberal, universalism, um, that's exemplified by somebody like Mill, who I I talked about at the outset. So a, a view that sees a kind of single developmental path for all of humanity, sees Europe in the vanguard and says, um, you know, humanity is, is one, um, is unified in our, in our overall trajectory, but Europe is ahead of everyone else on the developmental scale. And some people won't advance unless, um, unless they get help from more advanced, States. And that's the, the um, I would say, the kind of dominant imperial liberalism of the 19th century, which um, which comes into its own kind of crisis, as Karuna Montina has written about in, in her book, Alibis of Empire, in, say, the 1860s. Um, and it gives way to a more heavily racialized um, kind of uh, imperial argument um, and a more, you know, more... Um, a less universalist one, one that's, that's willing to, um, argue explicitly for differential standards for different people's parts, sometimes on racial grounds, sometimes on cultural grounds. Um, but that's a giving up on, on the universalism that I think is inherent in the, in the kind of million imperial liberalism of the mid 19th century. Mm -hmm.
0: And as, and as your story moves into the 19th century and, um, even in your, in your epilogue, when you talk about the, the friendship between the the painter William Rothenstein and and Tagore, for instance, we're moving into a time which, which, as you know, sees the picking up of many of these categories and concepts in a precisely anti-imperial register and for those types of ends. And so often sort of in the story that's told about, for instance, the Enlightenment or, for instance, something like international law, the trajectory is really... um, you know, these ideas come, come up in Europe, they're sort of bandied about either in the Salon or in, or in the court. And then by the time we get to the second half of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th, they're taken up by this new um, or newer class of sort of European educated, um, mm-hmm. largely bourgeois nationalists um, who, who use the very, those very terms sort of against that project or, or in another framework to participate in that project, kind of thinking with, for instance, Fred Cooper on, on imperial citizenship. Um, could you tell us a little bit about how you see that trajectory either as, as the epilogue to your story or as sitting in tension with it? Because it really seems like the two schools that you laid out for us, the sort of universalist one and the, the pluralist one, come back in conversations um, around the United Nations or around even something uh, as contemporary to us as uh, caps on on carbon emissions, right? <laughs> in, in in terms of uh, questions about standards and questions about expectations. Um, now, the idea that everyone is on the same footing and yet there is still a discontinuity and, and unevenness using the language of universalism to have a conversation about difference. Can you m- maybe tell us a little bit more about you know first of all why you end at the sort of beginning of the 20th century and what that Mm -hmm. arc that i've spelled out maybe you agree with it maybe you don't but what that arc um does for for your story
1: right yeah um it's a complicated question and one that i I might want to answer by way of uh, you know citing other people's work precisely because i do end um the the turn of the 20th century um and there's so many great um historians of of 20th century thought and, and empire working right now. Um, so I guess one thing I was say, um, W.E.B. Du Bois makes a very brief cameo appearance at the end of my book. And I would just, um, point to him. Um, and then I'll, um, gesture toward the work of others, um, to, to spell this out a bit, but, um, Du Bois was somebody who saw in the way. So I've already, I've talked about how, um, how the law of nations, the battalion law of nations offered a conceptual architecture that in many ways was deceptive um, and that was not useful for taking stock of the, the imperial nature of the global order. It was a poor language of disclosure in, in Tully's terms. Um, and, um, and it was one that, that persisted, you know, that did a lot of work in the 19th century as I've said um, and that you see returning, for instance, in um, something like Woodrow Wilson's Fourteen Points, um, that the kind of image of the world as a world of nation states interested in relations of mutuality, um, et cetera. And that, and as I said, that that conceptual architecture doesn't simply doesn't take stock properly of the fact that the major powers of the world order are at this time, you know, were at that time, continue to be. Um, Imperial in one way or another. I mean, at that time, you know, very explicitly imperial. Um, and Du Bois was somebody who, in contrast to somebody like Wilson, understood the global order to be one of um, hierarchy and um, and imperial exploitation. And he was very eloquent during World War One in saying, "World, you know, World War One, far from the picture that the international lawyers of the time." Gave of it, which was that it was a kind of almost inconceivable eruption of violence into a, a world that international law had been striving to make more peaceful. Um, du Bois said, on the contrary, it was entirely predictable. It was an, you know, an utterly predictable outcome of the constant imperial violence that went on throughout the course of the 19th century. Um, he saw the the imperial order as both a kind of um, rivalry among European imperial powers, which led to the violence of World War I, and also a kind of collusion of, you know, as in the Scramble for Africa, the kind of you know, carving up of, of the world among, among them. Um, and so he had a kind of clear-eyed view of, of World War I and its causes and the danger of future violence, which he you know, predicted, um, the, the causes of that violence in an imperial world order. So I guess one, and and um, just to say that that story is is carried on really beautifully um, by my colleague Adam Gatachu who's just published um, her book World Making After Empire: The Rise and Fall of Self-Determination, um, which shows how the story plays out among anti-colonial thinkers in um, the Black Atlantic, as she says, um, following Paul Gilroy, um, how it played out over the course of the 20th century up through the um, the. 1970s and, and for the new international economic order um, and her argument there is that anti-colonial thinkers um, in this vein understood the global order to be imperial and therefore understood that the response had to be not simply formal decolonization and the emergence of nation states um, but much more ambitious um, projects of world making as she said which include um, you know, forms of federation, which include for using the um, the General Assembly of the United Nations to further projects um, on behalf of greater equality between post-colonial states and and um, the states that had all the power in the international system. So that's that's one direction that the that the story could go, which is to say the conceptual architecture that I chart in the Vattelian world image. Um, is really problematic in Battelle's time. It's weaponized um, in the 19th century in various ways, um, as I've described. Um, and then it proves to be wholly inadequate, um, you know, epistemically and, and politically um, for understanding the world at the turn of the 20th century and the early decades of the 20th century. Um, and yet, and then there's this counter move by um, those who who have a more adequate kind of conceptual architecture um, and push it in, in various ways um, directions of political projects, which, you know, ultimately keep getting defeated by the imperial powers. But. um, so that's one line that one could take. I, another, another, um, direction would, would be to look at the work of somebody like Arnulf Becker Lorca, um, in his Mestizo International Law, which starts in the mid 19th century, but carries into the, the first decades of the, the 20th. Um, And and he shows the ways in which those that he calls semi-peripheral international lawyers um, take up the arguments of the international lawyers of, of, you know, the the hegemonic international lawyers of of 19th century Britain and France, um, Western Europe, um, take up the arguments of the standard of civilization. And, you know, Chinese and Japanese lawyers make the case that their states are, you know, have met the standard of civilization and therefore should be Um, admitted into the family of nations. Um, And again, that strategy proves it is shot down ultimately by the imperial powers in various ways. And and the really interesting story that he tells um, of the defeat of that project by mid 19th century, sort of mid to late 19th century international lawyers from outside Europe, Um, the defeat of their project, means that their successors in the early decades of the 20th century give up on that project of kind of buying into the um, the terms of European international law and they become more oppositional as a result. Um, so I, you know, pretty cursorily look at a few figures um, at, at when I'm charting something of the kind of reception of Vattel and, and the effects that the reception of Vattel had on the way people thought about these problems um, in the 19th century. There are a number of figures who are fighting European imperialism who take up Vattel because they see it as a useful resource. And and I look at Handan Koja in Algeria, um, and Lin Seishu, who's the the Chinese um, commissioner uh, dealing with the the opium crisis, both of whom um, get parts of Vattel translated for the purposes of arguing against um, European imperialism. Um, But again, those are defeated projects. So those are some of the ways in which the story carries carries into the the twentieth century. Mm-hmm.
0: Thank you so much. Um, like, like I think i I mentioned, I had a really wonderful time reading this book, particularly because it's incredibly clear how um, there are so many different entry points for people uh, working on sort of these more canonical political thinkers as well as trying to parse the increasingly complicated story of the relationship between something like international order and empire. Um, as, as we move through this quite dense, you know, set of, set of centuries from, from the 18th century of a very different kind of empire and international order, Mm -hmm. um, right down to, to the 20th. Um, before we wrap up though, I just wanted to, again, thank you so much uh, for taking the time to to talk to me about all of this. Um, and, and for so clearly laying out, um, all of the, all of the stakes of the book. I know that especially this time of year here at Princeton, people are preparing for their exams. And so hopefully there will be some people, um, kind of eager to figure out what the stakes of this historiography are, um, who are, who are listening and who I hope will really benefit from this. So thank you. Thanks. Thank you.